Tonight's final bout is for the Intercontinental Heavyweight Championship, scheduled for one fall or two curfew. Gathered together from the cosmic reaches of the universe, here in this great hall of justice are the most powerful forces of good ever assembled. The last of the titans. In the passion and death of their struggle, the very art that had raised them to such Olympian heights was lost. Their techniques vanished. Referee giving instructions here to both principals, and this should be one whale of a match to wind up things here in Madison Square Garden. All right, well, welcome to... <laughs> what do we call this show again, James? <laughs> It's the Titans of Wrestling. The Titans of Wrestling. The Titans of Wrestling. Yes, uh, on this show we're going to be talking about um, WWWF as it starts out in 1979. And we're going to track the development of the promotion all the way until about 1983. Isn't that right, James? And then if we get that far... (laughs) um, Yeah. Who knows what we're going to do after that? Maybe, you know, there could be some prime time and TNT on the horizon. What do you reckon? <laughs> That'll work. Um, so, yeah, really, uh, James and I, uh, I being a part of uh, where the big boys play fame, uh, and James being Brick House of um, internet wrestling board fame, <laughs> uh, have been, we, we've kind of been in uh, PM contact for some time, haven't we, James? Yeah, um, it, it all started, I think, when uh, you got in touch with me about a certain Gordon Soli comp. Oh, that's right. <laughs> and uh, we've kind of been in touch really every day since then, or at least every other day. We, we, we send quite a lot of messages back and forth. And uh, you, James, put together this um, rather mammoth set of WWF. From 79 to 83, which is kind of like the pre-Hogan era, I guess. Um, so just before we talk about that era in more detail, uh, maybe we can get to know a bit more about you, James, as a as a fan. I'm assuming that people know about me, which is a little bit of hubris on my part. But I guess I guess if they found and downloaded the show, they must know something about me right so let's let's find out about you then when how long have you been watching wrestling uh where are you from etc well i'm from uh wichita kansas born and raised and uh was born in 1978 and the first wrestling i could remember seeing would be 1982 or 83 and it was the central states promotion and i don't remember who was in the ring or anything and i'd I just saw it and instantly I was hooked. It was probably Bulldog Bob Brown demolishing <laughs> somebody, but it was it was two guys in blue tights, and uh, it was just crazy. It was like the greatest thing I'd ever seen. And uh, right away, within 30 seconds, my dad killed kayfabe for me because <laughs> just instantly he said, that's not real. Don't pay attention to it. It's nothing you ever want to get into. Just the real sports are what you need to focus on. And right. uh, so I was hooked, 
And uh, so then every chance I got, I'd try to watch any scrap of wrestling I could find. And I really got hooked on uh, what did it for me was the rock and wrestling cartoon, which started in September of 85. And uh, it was on late Saturday afternoons, but I only saw the cartoon and they played championship wrestling right after the cartoon. But usually I was, I was involved in every sport year round. And that was usually the time when we had games on Saturday was right when wrestling came on. Right. So I never got to see anything but the cartoon for like two or three years. And then, uh, and plus I was hanging out with kids in the neighborhood. But in 1989, we moved out into the middle of nowhere as if Kansas isn't already in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and, uh, there were no neighbors, no nothing. And we had a satellite dish. So I just watched wrestling every minute of every day that I was home and got totally hooked. That was with, uh, it was coming off of uh, Wrestle War with Flair and Steamboat. And uh, so the summer of 89 is really what totally hooked me as a fan. And I've pretty much been obsessed with it ever since. Wow. And have you ever had any kind of periods where you where you didn't watch or have you just been watching uh, all the way through? Uh, beginning in 93 when Hogan came back, uh, I was done. I was. Yeah. I swore off wrestling. I'll never watch it again because I'd been waiting for two or three years for him to go away, and I thought he was finally gone. And he came back, and I was getting into high school. None of my friends were into wrestling anymore, so I thought, "Well, I'm I'm done with this." But so we stopped. I stopped watching completely. But when we're whenever we're in a bookstore, grocery store, video store, whatever, I would always check the Coliseum videos and always check the magazines to kind of keep up with what was going on. Yeah. Like I remember being shocked that Vinny Vegas was the WWF champion <laughs> and, um, got back into it. Uh, pretty big, like sometime after the Hogan turn, I caught that on TV that Hogan was a heel right. in June of 96. So Hogan drove me away from wrestling and Hogan brought me back. So, so many people have a, a similar, you know, I've talked to a lot of people now, and uh, I, I find a lot of people have a gap in between 93 and about 95, 96, and then they come back for the Monday Night Wars. Um, yeah. Now, you said you were waiting for Hogan to go away. Did you, like me, hate Hulk Hogan when you were a kid, or were you a heel fan, or were you just sick of him by that point? No, I was generally a fan of the faces, but... Uh... I never cared too much for Hulk Hogan, and uh, it seemed like one match was the same as the next. He'd get beat down, then have his comeback and pin the guy, and the you know, the outcome was never in question. I just got sick of that same routine over and over and over again. Right. I mean, like even as a kid, you knew he was going to win at the end, right, as well? Oh, yeah. No question. <laughs> I, I mean, like uh, that main event in February of 88, uh, that was one of the few that my parents actually let me watch, and I was just stunned. Uh, with, with evil twin refs? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of that angle, as you may imagine. Uh, oh, yeah, it's great. <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, I, uh, I do think that the booking right through uh, that period is really, 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 really good. Um, so you mentioned that uh, your first experience of watching wrestling was Central States. How much Central States did you get to see... When you were growing up, because uh, I've always heard that that's like the most boring promotion in the world. Oh, I'm I'm sure it was terrible. Uh, <laughs> but if 
I would say maybe I saw an hour total. Uh, it was just wrestling was just not something that we were encouraged to watch. Right. And, uh, and it went away pretty quick. Uh, WWF TV came in earlier, mid 85 here and central States disappeared. So I have very little recollection of it. And did, uh, Vince ever make any overtures to bring in, uh, you know, bulldog Bob Brown? Well, he should have. But, I mean, uh, he, I don't know. He brought all the kind of big stars, right, from all around the country. So, yeah, have, was he the like the biggest draw in that area? Um, that's I don't know for sure, but anybody that I talk to around here that's over the age of fifty, that's the first name they talk they bring up, and that's all they want to talk about is Bulldog Bob Brown, and uh, he was definitely the name here in Wichita, but I'm sure up in Kansas city, it was Harley race. Yeah. Race is the other big guy from that area. Yeah. Okay. I, 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 the other thing I've never quite got, I I don't know if you know the answer, uh, James is, is the relationship between central States and the St. Louis office. Cause, uh, they're kind of two, uh, promotions. I always think of together in some way. I think it's, possibly the Harley race connection there, but do you have any insight into that? Uh, no. <laughs> Sadly, <laughs> All right. no. I, I, the St. Louis, uh, St. Louis is something that it, it confuses me and I've never really looked into it any further. I know Bob Geigel was involved yeah. at some level and I know he, him and Harley race, I think owned central States. So there was a connection there, but I'm the wrong guy to ask. Um, so the, the other thing I want to ask you uh, about your uh, kind of journey as a fan is how did you become the guy who makes, uh, you know, epic, <laughs> epic sets? Like, how did that happen? Well, uh, I've always wanted to do it uh, for as long as I could remember. Like, renting, I rented every Coliseum video I could get my hands on as a kid. Uh, WrestleMania 4 was the first one. And... Uh, just everything I get my hands on in the Coliseum videos were like fifty nine ninety five, and just, you know, ridiculous to buy. Uh, so I thought, you know, if I ever get a chance to own everything that's out there, I'm going to do it. And all the way through high school and college, my whole goal was <laughs> as sad as it is. My life <laughs> ambition was to have a job that paid the bills and left, left me a little bit of money uh, uh, left over so I could, purchase as much wrestling as possible. <laughs> right. And, uh, then I just, uh, I don't know. I just started making them and, uh, <laughs> now I can't stop. <laughs> and, uh, have you like been a big, uh, presumably you need to accumulate all the footage to, to make it as well. So, uh, have you been involved in the kind of wider tape trading scene? Uh, kind of murky uh, world I'm not part of. <laughs> yeah, quite a bit. Um, I used to be more, uh, I used to just deal with a couple of people here and there. Um, I started really hardcore collecting in 1998 and, uh, bought a lot of tapes from a guy named Steve on the East coast. I think everybody will know who I'm talking about. And, um, it kind of sprung from there and I was a big collector of, I still am of NFL football games. Right. And I used, I found some guys online that, had a lot of wrestling and they wanted a lot of football games. So I built up 
the collection pretty quick by trading a lot of football games. So you were giving football and getting wrestling back, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's not a bad, uh, not a bad deal. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, now it's, well, uh, both collections are just out of control. <laughs> right. And uh, did, was there a moment where you had to kind of switch uh, all your tapes to DVDs, or do you still have a lot of VHS? No. I uh, I spent probably about six months converting all my VHS to DVD, and uh, I think that was 2007 at some point, where every minute I was awake, I was converting tapes and... I got them done in six months' time, probably, and I don't know how many I had at that time, but it was just constant. And then I threw them all away and never looked back. <laughs> now, uh, I guess a layperson would ask, uh, why? <laughs> why? What? 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 Why do you uh, collect all this footage? Is it to watch, or did you just like the feeling of having it all there? I mean, what's the uh, what's the insight into a big uh, wrestling collector in this way? <laughs> guy's got to have a hobby <laughs> right a guy has got to have a hobby there's a lot worse stuff i could be spending my money on no that's uh, that's absolutely true and uh i uh well I, I don't i'm sure i don't have anywhere near as much footage as you uh james but i'm i'm you know i'm building up a healthy collection myself so i'm not one to uh, i can't really uh pass any judgment <laughs> um so uh that brings us on to uh the uh current topic WWF or WWWF as it was uh, from 1979 to 1983. Now, what made you make that set? Like, what were your uh, motivations? I guess did did you feel that um, you know a lot a lot of attention is paid elsewhere and there was a gap to fill? Uh, Yeah, uh, I don't I don't personally think that era gets enough respect and attention that it probably deserves and. The stuff that I looked at that was out there, like all of the TV, it's all out of order and jumbled up together. And so I thought, well, let's let's at least do something where we can get everything in a precise timeline uh, in order. And the original idea was to uh, just consolidate all of my footage into one set, and then I was going to get rid of all the all the miscellaneous discs that had all these matches on them. And uh, that didn't happen, but now there's a set that goes in chronological order. I think it's easier to digest than if somebody wanted to get involved in the era, they would they would have to go out and get 100 or 150 discs, and then they'd be constantly putting different discs in if they wanted to go in order. Right. And, so. and what's the kind of organizing principle for the disc? I mean, it, you kind of... Uh... Is it really a sampling of the period, or like what was your main thought putting it together? Uh, it's more of a sampling. What really hurts it is there's no weekly TV sets for 79, 80, 81, and part of 82 that I'm aware of. Right. Um, it's just all kind of random. And then you get like June, I think it starts in about June of 82, there's weekly television available for all of the years that follow. But uh, I just wanted to gather a sampling, a, a good sampling, so somebody would get the idea of what it was like to watch the promotion at the time. So, so you, there's an, yeah, carry on, sorry. Well, I think there's enough there on that set to give you a good idea, but it's not everything, you know. 
Right, and you've kind of like given people an idea of the major matches and feuds, and it's kind of like the highlights, like a highlight reel, I guess, but a very right. long one. <laughs> right. Uh, right. Okay. Uh, no, good, good. And uh, we are, uh, we're going to start right at the beginning in January 1979. Uh, was there any reason that you started in 79 and not earlier? Uh, two reasons. Uh, one, I didn't want to start to set off in January of 1980 where you've got Larry Zbysko immediately turning on Bruno. I thought it would be kind of cool to show him as a face mm-hmm. because he's been a heel like pretty much his whole career. And uh, so it establishes Larry as a as a baby face and you, there's a, a few little connections to Bruno throughout the year, not much. And then the other reason was um, I saw the uh, Bob Backlund versus Greg Valentine match from February of eight of 79. And I thought, Oh, I got to put this on the set. Right. And we're so, going to be talking about that very much oh, yeah. later on today. So, <laughs> um, okay. Well, just before we uh, get into the uh, matches that we that are featured on uh, this very first disc, um, I did want to talk a little bit about WWE or WWF uh, revisionism. Um, because it, it's always felt to me that kind of wrestling history starts with Hulk Hogan. I mean, it starts with WrestleMania 1 or with uh, Hogan defeating the Sheik, as we've been talking about on uh, Pro Wrestling Only recently. Um, and it's almost like the entire Backland reign is kind of, it's, I wouldn't say it's written out of history, but like in the kayfabe version, it's very rarely mentioned uh, pretty much until Backlund came back in uh, 1993 or so. Um, yeah. And even then, it was kind of like a, a footnote. Um, do, you, do you think that that has kind of led people really to completely overlook the era? I mean, I mean, what, why, why is it so slept on, I guess, is the question. Uh, good question. I don't know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, my experience is people tend to dismiss it very quick, like they don't even want to get into it at all. And I don't know exactly why that is. Uh, I think if you're not going to like something, you might as well watch enough of it to make sure you don't like it. Um, like... I remember, like, I can only speak for myself, but renting the best of the WWF Coliseum tapes in the 80s, uh, they'd throw on some of those older matches, and I just thought they were the drizzling shits. You know, like, how could anybody like this shit? And uh, somehow I, I started watching. Uh, the turning point was uh, 1998. I got a, a compilation tape that I ordered a tape that just had, like, every bits and pieces of every territory on it just to get an idea of everything that was out there. And uh, it was a Bob Backlund versus Magnificent Morocco match from March 20th of 1983. And I've, I've yet to talk to anybody that really even likes that match, but that's the match that got me interested in the era. And what, what, what was so good about it? What, what made you interested? I don't even remember now, <laughs> but I remember popping for the finish, whatever that was. <laughs> So just before, if anybody is going to kind of come on this journey with us, and uh, there may be, you know, a couple of people out there crazy enough to, to do that, um, <laughs> or even if the people, you know, want to uh, check out footage for themselves, um, what can they expect, James? What are the big differences? And let's use um, 
let's use kind of late eighties WF as the as the main comparison point. Uh, what what can they expect to to see? I, you've talked to me before about culture shock. <laughs> yeah, uh, there seems to be a, it, it's a slower pace. Um, there's exceptions to that, but the slower pace in the ring and through the angles, and there's less stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, which makes the stuff that actually happens stand out more. You get fewer angles. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> I've been I've been in involved in it for so long that I can't. <laughs> I don't really even know so how to sell somebody on it. It's it's generally slower in the ring. It's generally um, kind of like. Could we say it's also a little bit drier in terms of. Uh, the presentation in terms of what what we're seeing. Oh um, yeah, you know th- there's Try no and laid back. It seems pretty laid back. Yeah, I mean, there, and there's no like there's no entrance music. Uh, I mean, what what? Uh, let's uh, let's not even think about eighties WF. What were like a modern <laughs> a fan of like the John Cena era going back to watch this? Like, what would he be missing? I guess there's no entrance music. <laughs> there's no oh. like color commentator a lot of the time. Uh, what else I, is there? Uh, um, there's, uh, I mean, like Ivan Putzky is the only guy I can think of that was roided up. Yeah, the, the kind of body shapes are generally different, um, and I, I guess uh, a lot of these differences will will come out when we when we start talking yeah. about the the matches. So shall we uh, get into the very first match then? What, what is that first match? Let's have a look. Um, it's uh, is it Johnny Valiant versus Larry Zbysko from the 27th of January, 1979. Is that right? Yeah, yes. that, what a hell of a way to start a set. <laughs> so, um, w- one of the things I wanted to do on this uh, show um, is because I am aware that some of these workers may not be familiar to uh, you know the casual <laughs> listener. Um, so, I, I've put together some little uh, little bios here. Uh, for when we first encounter, uh, you know, a worker in in these matches. Um, and the idea with these bios is that I want to fill in the kind of picture to date, to the date being 1979. So what was this guy up, up to before this point in his career? Um, and my main sources, you know, as you know, James, I, I'm an academic, so I, I need to uh, give some citations here. Um, my main sources are the... Uh, uh, the Greg Oliver and uh, Johnson books, you know, the heels, uh, icon, heroes and icons, and the tag teams. And occasionally I've cross, um, cross-checked them with Larry Matisik's, uh Top 50 um, top fifty Wrestlers book. Um, right. So, yeah, it, like, uh, Matasek's a little bit kind of more detailed uh, sometimes, so uh, occasionally. But, of course, he only lists 50 guys there. So today, for example, he's only really helped me out with Backland. <laughs> um, oh, that's so, all he's got from this 
time period? Yeah, well, from the workers that we look at on this show. Oh, okay. Um, okay. That's the only guy who makes his top 50. Uh, and, we, and when we get to Backland, I'll, uh, I'll, t- I'll tell you what matters success. Um, <laughs> so Johnny Valiant then. Um, so feel free to, to, to chime in uh, whenever you want, uh, James, as I'm going through some of these details. Uh, luscious Johnny Valiant, okay. He, um, he can be credited, according to, uh, according to Greg Oliver, for re-sparking interest in tag wrestling in the Northeast, because the Valiants revived um, the all-blonde uh, tag teams, which they hadn't seen in that area since the Golden Grahams, at least a decade before. Uh, ever see any Golden Grahams? Any? <laughs> I guess there's not a lot of footage of those guys. Uh, no, I haven't, but I would love to. Yeah, you know, I would. I'd also like to. Uh, well, I mean, it'd be nice to see anything from that era, right? Oh yeah. Um. So the Valiants were Johnny Valiant and uh, Jimmy Valiant. Um, later, of course, the Boogie Woogie Man, uh, who we all know and love. Um, they first made it big in Dick the Bruiser's Indianapolis promotion, the WWA. Um, and they were actually the creation of Bobby Heenan, uh, who was there at that time. Uh, and, he was, and he managed them. But he then disowned, he disowned them, uh, I'm assuming, in kayfabe, uh, when he left to that area to go to the AWA. They've Johnny Vay and Heenan have have or did have legitimate heat at right. one time. Oh, right. Uh, according to Bobby Heenan's first book, I don't remember exactly what he said, but he something like he had no use for the Valiants or something like that. Oh, right. So I, I assume <laughs> I assume that this was a kayfabe account of, of what happened, but maybe Heenan like has actually disowned them in 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 real life. Yeah, I don't I don't know all the details in that in that book. You know, it was 12 years ago, so they may have made amends at this point. But I never heard any more detail. It was he went Heenan went through all the guys he managed and said something nice about all of them. And when it got to the Valiants, he said, I have no use for the Valiants. And then he moved on. Right. Oh, well, it made it sound like he kind of disowned them in, in the angle in order to leave to go to uh, mini, uh, Minneapolis. Huh. Uh, sorry, Minnesota, not me. I think he was going to Minnesota at that time. Um, so, well, I'd be interested. Anyone listening, I'm sure you'd be able to fill us in there. Um, so, basically, while they were still in the WWA, they beat uh, Dick the Bruiser and Bruno Sammartino, who were considered a dream team at that time, for the tag titles in 1974. And uh, they got pretty over there. And not long after that, they went up to New York, where they beat um, Johnny Sorrow's uh, hero, Tony Gurria, and Dean Ho for the tag titles um, almost immediately when they went up there. And they actually held them for longer than a year uh, at that point, which is the longest reign uh, in the WWF tag reign until demolition uh, about a decade later. So not bad. Um, They regularly headlined uh, shows against Bruno and Chief J Strongbow and were the only true top, main event level tag team of their day in the WWF. Um, they had stints in Georgia and San Francisco. And then in 1978-79, period on which we're focusing here, James, Jimmy Valiant contracted hepatitis, which I don't know why <laughs> is very amusing to me, but it should, it should I mean, that's pretty serious, right? Hepatitis right. and kill you. <laughs> but Does that come as a shock? 
<laughs> so, so Jimmy Valiant contacted, uh, contracted hepatitis, so they brought in Gentleman Jerry Valiant as the third wheel. And he, uh. And, uh, he and Johnny had a second tag title run in 1979. And my real memory of Gentleman uh, uh, Jerry Valiant is getting squashed in like six seconds by Uncle Alma. Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah, on right. on Saturday night's main event, and uh, yeah. I I got I got really interested. Like, what the hell was he doing between seventy nine and eighty six to turn up as like a basic jobber at that point? But um, it, at all my digging, uh, really, really fan was that that was a one shot. He was brought in for one date rather than he wasn't actually working there all that time. So mm. now uh, that that Dick the Bruiser and Bruno San Martino tag team title match in WWA. Uh, does it say who took the pinfall in that? Um, no, but I'm assuming it was Dick the Bruiser. I would think so too. That's be interesting to find out. Yeah. But then like that was his own promotion, right? So yeah, uh, that's a, that's I a can't be- imagine Bruno laying down <laughs> for one of the valiants. <laughs> that's a good, that's a good question actually. Um, no, it did. Well, it didn't say who took the pinfall. That's, a, that's weird. Maybe it was like a special stipulation or something. I don't know. Right. Uh, uh, yeah, the over-the-top rule. Just <laughs> titles change on a disqualification. World-class yeah. rule. Or the, the, somewhere the, does that. I don't remember who. The, the only other thing I've got in this little uh, bio is a uh, is a quote, quotation from Jimmy Valiant. He says, right, and get this. <laughs> we were like Coca-Cola. We were all over. We were like buttered toast, man, coast to coast. <laughs> oh, so God. there we are. <laughs> so I, I'm assuming Jimmy Valiant like said that in an interview to to the that authors. That's about right. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so his opponent uh, in this match, Larry Zabisco, and uh, I don't have a huge amount for Zabisco pre '89. Um, he was from uh, Pittsburgh, um, and he broke into the business around 1973. And apparently he'd been virtually stalking Bruno Sammartino, who was a hero, for at least two years before this. And he was, uh, I, I don't know, this sounds like the stuff of myth and legend to me, but uh, this is, so the story goes. He was so persistent in uh, his stalking of Bruno that Bruno uh, ended up taking him on and training him. Um, so that when he was brought into the WWF in 1974, it was as Bruno's uh, on-screen protege. His first... Uh, Big angle was with Spirius Arion. Um, oh yeah. When uh, Arion turned on uh, Bruno, does does he uh, crop up uh, on the set, James? Spiros Arion. Yeah. Uh, he may <laughs> pop up quite a bit on a uh, possible seventy-five through seventy-eight set, but I don't believe he's on this set. But if if he is, it's once or twice. Right. I, I, I can imagine he was like a J uh, job to the stars by, you know, by the 80s, right? Oh, uh, yeah. If he uh, was even still around. If he was around. But while well, apparently Arion turned on Bruno uh, and he wanted to get to him by beating up his students at Zabisco. So uh, hmm. they had a stint in California. Uh, Zabisco did. Uh, I'm guessing for the for the Shires, uh, although it didn't say. So it could. There was two promotions in California, I seem to recall. There's the the San Francisco one and, and the other one, the LA. Yeah, it was Shire and LaBelle, and I get those guys mixed up. I don't know who ran yeah. who. <laughs> uh, well, it, it was one of the other. Um, and, uh, well, he was he had a little stint there in 1975 before going back to the WWF and getting a tag title run 
with guess who? <laughs> Tony Gurria. <laughs> um, so which kind of brings us to the present situation where he's tagging with uh, Gurria as Bruno's protege and feuding with the Valiants, which brings us neatly on to Zabisco versus Valiant in our very first match here. So how do you like that? What do you think of those bios? <laughs> Not um, bad. <laughs> so what what did you make of uh, what did you make of this uh, match? My first note is that Albano with a whistle outside could get old fast. That's my first note as well. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I wanted to reach through the screen and strangle that fat bastard with that whistle. <laughs> uh, yeah, not not much going on in this match. Uh, you got Johnny Valiant using a nerve hold for an extended period of time, and then Larry reverses it and uses another nerve hold in a six-minute match. Uh, not a lot going on. Yeah, they, I've got some very superficial notes. Like Zabisco looks quite different from me. Uh, to, to, like he looks quite different from the Zabisco that I know, um, even from like Zabisco from AWA a couple of years later. Um, I, I guess he's still got all his hair, and you know he's got kind of slightly sprier body than he would have later on but yeah. he he doesn't look a lot like uh, the larry's uh larry that i know um the only other thing i've got is that lou albano's kicks are absolutely oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, why don't you take us through this finish here what happens uh can you remember uh it was a double count out and uh Bruno and Bruno saves Larry and Tony Gurria comes out for the save also. Um, that's about all I've got written down for this match. <laughs> and then and then Al- Albano tries to start kicking uh, kicking Zabisco and his kicks. I mean, they are the most pathetic kicks I've ever seen. Yeah, they wouldn't they wouldn't crack eggs. <laughs> um, so yeah, a pretty nothing match to start. Uh, whoa, pretty anticlimactic first match for us, James. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, the, the only thing I've got to say is that I always hear good things about, uh, Johnny Valiant as a kind of personal personality and a pretty over, over heel, but he didn't look like a very good worker to me here. And no, no, I, I've never seen any evidence of, of anything good out of Johnny Valiant in the ring. So, I mean, just going, like, obviously we'll see quite a bit more of Zabisco on the, you know, on the shows coming up, but what are your general thoughts on him? Do you have, like, a period where you think he's at his best, or? Uh, not really. I liked him a lot when he was teaming with, teamed with Arn Anderson in WCW. Yeah, a lot of people point to that era, yeah. Kind of and, dangerous alliance era. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I've always kind of liked him, but I haven't seen a lot of AWA like when he was champion there and mm-hmm. he was in there before he was champ. That his best work might be in the AWA, but uh, uh. I think he's acceptable here. Um, he didn't have a lot to work with in this match, but I think he might be. I'm not sure he could carry anything on his own. I have to say, I watched a match last night that blew me away with Zabisco. It was Zabisco versus um, Saito for the AWA title in uh, to- in that Tokyo Dome show in 1990. Oh, right. Absolutely amazing. If you've never seen that, it's it's basically um, uh, Mr. Saito working as a, as a, as a pumped-up Hulk Hogan-style babyface against Zabisco. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> is Larry bouncing off of him like a ping pong ball? Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. Um, so at, at the minute, that may be the best match I've seen out of Zabisco. 
There's also wow. a, there's also a brilliant um, match on the AWA set. It's it's about four or five minutes long, uh, where um, it's Bockwinkle versus Abisko, where you'll see like the best pile driver you've ever seen. So that's a, those two matches are currently my standouts for him, um, as well as the Dangerous Alliance tags with Arn. I, I I think most people would point to that '92 era as his best best kind of run though. Yo, I slayed them seeds back in the rack room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like Kempatera. So take your clothes off, the track is so soft. A little vodka turned them into Ivan Koloff. We too hard to hold on. One arm slam you like Nikolai Volkov. With Lusmatic, I freak beat slam it like Iron Sheik. Um, so our very next match then has Abisko going up against uh, one of my favorites, Ivan Koloff. Um. And uh, I've got a little bit of uh, notes for Ivan. Um, Koloff is actually French-Canadian. Do you know that? His uh, his real name is Oriel Paris. Oh, wow. Um, he started out wrestling in the 1960s as Reg... <laughs> Get this, okay. Red McNulty, <laughs> an Irish villain with an eye patch. <laughs> he... Uh, now apparently he's still re- still wrestling as Red McNulty. Uh, Jacques Rougeau Senior saw Koloff wrestling in Japan, and became convinced that he'd be better off working as a Russian. So he brought <laughs> he brought him into uh, Quebec, which was run by Johnny Rougeau, his brother at that time. They got him to uh, shave his head, and so Ivan Koloff was born, and he was billed. And I thought this was really cool. He was billed as the nephew of Dan Koloff, who was the big villain in that territory almost 30 years before this. So I think that's, uh, if, when you think of Nikita, there's got a beautiful poetry to it. That, um, Ivan was first brought in as another big-name Russian's nephew. I thought it was really cool. I had no idea. No, I, d- I didn't know. Um, and then he went on tours uh, to Australia and Hawaii um, before he being brought in as the WWWF uh well, he was brought in by Vince Senior in 1971 to deliver uh, what Oliver calls the knee drop here around the world when he <laughs> when he defeated Bruno Sammartino to become the WWWF champion. And uh, I struggle to say I I can see why they lost that extra W. That was a good oh, mar- yeah. that was a good marketing move by Vince. Um, obviously he was uh, m- much like Iron Sheik uh, a decade later. He was a transitional champ who lost the belt three weeks later to Pedro uh, Morales. Um, but him and Bruno started a long-lasting and pretty well-drawing rivalry that went on and off for the next decade or so. Um, and then after this, he had successful runs in Georgia, Florida, Mid-Atlantic, Puerto Rico, uh, Dick the Bruiser's WWA, uh, before becoming a staple of the Crockett tag title picture for much of the 1980s. Um yeah, I mean, I, I'm a, I have liked a lot of Ivan that I've seen. I think that uh, in all the Crockett stuff, he's good at hold, holding the heel side of things together. Uh, how much Ivan have you seen, James? Uh, quite a bit. I've seen most of his Mid-Atlantic work, and uh, through making this set, I became a huge mark for Ivan Koloff. Uh, I love the guy. So, as we... As this match starts, uh, he's in a great red cape here, <laughs> and uh, I couldn't help but notice that the ring announcer. Did you know? Do any idea who this ring announcer is? 
Is it Capetta or the old man? No, well, I thought that he seems like he'd be Gary Michael Capetta's hero because he had the same sort of like whiny voice as Capetta, but didn't seem to be Capetta. So maybe, maybe this was like the uh, you know the Capetta's idol of some sort, or it could have been like a very young Capetta. I don't know, but I I, I think it's uh, I think it's Gary Michael Capetta. Right, um, I have to pop was, it in and make sure he was working as early as this. Oh yeah! Wow! Yeah, um, man, I've got his book. Uh, I should look that up. <laughs> I want to say seventy-seven, but that's going to be wow. wrong, and someone will be sure to correct me on that. Yeah, I know. Uh, do you know where this match is from? This uh, this particular match, because uh, I seem to remember listening to an interview with him um, where he uh, he said that he only really worked like kind of Baltimore area. Like he he seldom did the MSG shows. Would this would have been in uh, Pennsylvania. I don't know yeah. if they were at Allentown at the time or... Right. You know, I, it must have been Capetta then. I, I mean, I thought he sounded a lot like Capetta, but apparently Capetta only worked like Philly, Baltimore. Like He worked kind of in that neck of the woods. He didn't do... Uh, he did a lot of Spectrum shows, but he didn't right. do MSG. Um, or... Did, uh, I'm not sure if he did Boston. I don't think he did the Boston shows either. But I guess I we'll think so. I guess we'll see as we as we uh, as we go along. Um, so uh, I thought this one started out a lot more technical than the uh, than the previous match. Uh, any thoughts? Uh, it was a lot better match than the first one. <laughs> uh, you know, Ivan. You know, with Ivan Koloff, generally things are going to be. He's going to keep things moving, uh, and. I thought he took some nice bumps and they kept up a nice little pace for a TV match. Yeah, I mean, um, a couple of things I noticed. First of all, um, there was a moment where Vince dubbed over himself to shill upcoming cards. Is that a common feature of uh, programming at this point? Oh, yeah, get used to it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There was a color commentator there. Was that Bruno? Uh, Probably was, yeah. Yeah. Albano was managing Ivan, as well as the Valians at this time, so he must have had quite a little uh, stable going on. Yeah. Um, what happened in the uh, finish here? Albano tripped Zabisco, and then Zabisco actually left the ring um, to get Tony Guerrilla, yeah. <laughs> which is a little bit strange. Uh, Ivan did a good job of like drawing the crowd, arguing with the ref. He did quite a lot of like you know, standard heel stuff, but it was pretty effective. Um, he did uh, knee lifts and snap bears. I, I enjoyed his control segment. Uh, Zabisco, um, mainly he did arm drags, and uh, I noticed he was pretty over with the crowd. Um, and Guerrilla came in and kept Albano at bay. Um, I thought... Well, <laughs> how many times did Albano kick Zabisco and Guria would just stand there with a disapproving <laughs> look on his face. What was he out there for? Uh, he didn't do anything. <laughs> well, there was a weird moment because it pretty much ended uh, with what you'd call a schmoz. It's an American term I've picked up. I've only ever really heard it in uh, wrestling lingo. Um, the word schmoz. Is that in everyday parlance, James? <laughs> I don't. Not around here. <laughs> Um, so basically, uh, I, I thought that like Koloff had like pretty good viciousness on his stomps and things. 
Gurria came out and um, Albano like got stuck in the ropes and bailed. So there's a moment where Ivan is two on one against Zabisco and Gurria. And uh, Gurria's standing there on the apron and Ivan just bashes him on the head and then leaves the ring. I was like, what, <laughs> what, what happened there? I mean, me being a, you know, from a slightly later era, I was expecting the faces to kick his ass then. Yeah. Yeah, didn't I, I, I didn't really understand this at all. <laughs> but uh, one thing I did notice that um, got my attention was, did you see how fast Albano sprinted back to the dressing room? <laughs> it was like he was shot out of a cannon. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was it was pretty amusing though, how quickly he uh, he bailed there. And he just left Ivan to take it. Like, <laughs> And that's what I thought. I was expecting the faces to uh, beat Ivan up then, but it didn't happen. No. Uh, which uh, made Guerrilla especially seem really weak. But there we are. Yeah. Um, and then Guerrilla Monsoon was there with a chair, randomly. Oh, that's right. Did you see? I, and not like <laughs> not not like a wrestling chair either, like a like a wooden like a wooden chair. Right. Um, was uh, Gorilla wearing a like a white polo shirt or something? He looked like a hot air balloon. <laughs> well, I, I thought it was maybe like Hawaiian or something. But, oh, okay. Um, speaking of, uh, so we we've seen two pretty dodgy finishes so far. Yeah. Um, speaking of uh, dress sense, Vince is out now wearing a. What you've called James a canary yellow suit, yeah. <laughs> um, and I thought that Vince at this point is looking pretty butch. Like I reckon he had quite a nice body under <laughs> under that suit. Like yeah. Vince is quite a big guy, isn't he? Yeah, he's pretty stacked. <laughs> um, so they have a talk with a uh, he has a talk with Backlund now. He gives an extremely straight laced promo. Um, so Backlund, Mister Charisma, yeah. Uh, any any initial thoughts on Backlund as a as a promo? Like, do you think that there's any sense in which he's underrated as a as a promo during this period? Uh, I'm not particularly a fan. Um, they're too laid back and understated. And uh, if you've heard one, you've pretty much heard them all until about 1982 or so, which we you know may get to someday. <laughs> right. I mean, I th- I think that. That is a staple of baby faces of this period, though. Like, even like Ric Flair when he gives baby face promos. Yeah. In this early, in this kind of early '80s, late '70s period, they're kind of low key and calm, and you know, it. it so it's it's almost like of the era, really. Would you say? Yeah, pretty much. Um, I think a guy to watch out for that we'll get to is. Uh, Bruno's promos are pretty awesome. Uh, right. But we can discuss that when, when they pop up. Okay, well, um, now we get another promo. Uh, Greg Valentine is with the, with the Grand Wizard. <laughs> um, so we, we should uh, have a little note about the managers here. There, there, are, there are three big ones for, for New York, right? Yeah. So it's, um, it's Grand Wizard, Lou Albano, and uh, Fred Blassie. Yeah. Was uh, was Blassie around at this time in '79? Is he? Is yeah, he, he definitely was. Um, I'm not positive when he started, uh, but you know, maybe '76, '77. I have to look, but Blassie's definitely there. And they pretty much manage every single heel wrestler, right? Yeah, every one of them, and they're really the main, the three main heels of the promotion. 
they're just constantly bringing in a rotation of new guys to challenge Backlund and uh, Lou Albano managed pretty much all the tag teams. Right, so Albano was like the tag team specialist. Yeah, and the other guys, would have, I know Blassie would have a team every once in a while, but Albano was the tag team guy. And then uh, the Wizard and Blassie, to a lesser extent, were sending guys after Backlund. Right, so, I mean, it sounds like, uh, I mean, Wizard is managing uh, Valentine here. Was Blassie mainly with the undercard guys then, or...? At this point in time, I know he had uh, Nikolai Volkov um, in 79. Uh, man, um, I'm not exactly sure who else he's got in his stable right now, but um, he gets into the mix. He's got a decent group of guys. <laughs> if you were a manager at this point and you had a draft pick, okay, Ivan Koloff or Nikolai Volkov, which one would you be? <laughs> Koloff. <laughs> no question. Uh, um, so, Greg Valentine at this point looks pretty smooth, I think. Like, he's got uh, blonde, his blonde hair, obviously. Uh, but I think, like, I've written here on my notes that he's almost good looking. <laughs> Do you know what I mean by that? Not really. <laughs> well, he kind of looks like quite kind of smooth i mean he's still got like the, the kind of pan face that we that we you know know and love him for but he's kind of like a little bit younger and a little bit less grizzled and you know i think he looks kind of quite looks all right <laughs> so anyway in this promo he accuses backland of not being able to talk right and uh <laughs> grand w- and therefore shouldn't be the champ um and grand wizard stands in the back smiling and not saying anything Right. Is that, uh, like, Wizard does give promos, right? Oh, yeah. So, um, oh, yeah. What, what's, what's the idea of having the manager not say anything? I mean, if anything, uh, it should be Valentine not saying anything, right? That's, yeah, that's a good question. I was wondering the same thing. Bob Backlund versus Greg Valentine. So, mm-hmm. let me just go go through the uh, the uh, histories of both of these guys real quickly. Um, Greg Valentine started wrestling in the 1960s, tagging with Don Fargo in Texas as Babyface Nelson. <laughs> um, he had a he had a run as Johnny Fargo in the NWF, which apparently was an old New York promotion uh, based in Buffalo. Um, I'm not familiar with the NWF at all. Um, after the plane crash that almost uh, broke uh, Ric Flair's back and paralyzed his father Johnny uh, Valentine, George Scott, the Booker, uh, brought uh, Greg in to tag with Flair. Uh, in 1975, to be the Carolinas version of Ray Stevens and Pat Patterson. Um, so it seemed like blonde tag teams were a big thing in the mid-70s. Yeah. Every promotion needed a kind of blonde heel tag team, it seems. Um, 
And then 76, 77, they tagged a lot against the Minnesota Wrecking Crew, uh, Ole and Gene Anderson, um, and held the NWA tag titles twice. Apparently, Ole did a stretch job on Christmas Day 1976 in Greensboro. Um, after trading the titles back and forth with Gene and Ole, they were eventually stripped of the titles by NWA president Eddie Graham in April 1978. Valentine then had stints tagging with Baron Von Raschke and Ray Stevens before joining the WWWF in 1978, where he would become a prime challenger for Bob Backlund's title. <laughs> so, uh, there we are. That brings us up to right now. And then Bob Backlund ranked 35 in uh, Larry Matasek's uh, book of the top 50 wrestlers ever. Now, according to Matasek, uh, Vince Sr., who'd built his promotion around ethnic babyfaces, um, after, like, during the Billy Graham run, became convinced that Billy Graham's kind of style would be short-lived, you know, that it, it had a, a shelf life. Um, so now he wanted an all-American boy and gave Sam Muchnick uh, a call in St. Louis for a good hand. Now, according to uh, Matasek, Ted DiBiase was a bit green at this time, and this was before the Von Erichs really uh, set Texas alight. So Muchnick put Backland forward. Backland had been an NCAA national champ in the amateur in amateur wrestling. Uh, I'm guessing that's a pretty big deal, the NCAA national championship. No idea myself. Uh, I suppose we don't pay much attention <laughs> to amateur wrestling here. <laughs> yeah, I mean pro wrestling is where it's at, right? That's where Damn the right. that's where the big boys play. <laughs> um, they uh. <laughs> Basically, uh, Backlund came with top, legit credentials, uh, which was a big deal to a certain mindset. I always get the impression that guys like Matasek and Muchnick and Vince Senior, like gave a lot of credence to guys who were, you know, big in the amateur, guys who, who had legit, who were legit athletes, basically. Oh, yeah. Um, Backlund got his start in Bill Watts' fledgling Mid-South Territory in 1973, and almost immediately got injured after taking a big bump over the top rope. He has stints in Amarillo with the Funks uh, in the AWA. He had short stays in Georgia and Florida before getting his big break in St. Louis in December 1975, winning the Missouri State Championship, which is considered to be a stepping stone. And uh, Matasek, of course, claims that um, St. Louis is the Harvard of wrestling. So, no, of course. <laughs> so, I mean, there is this. If you do, if you do look at the history of the Missouri State title, there's a lot of big, big names there. You know, like Race, Briscoe, Dory Funk. You know, the, a lot of guys who went on to become world champions had that belt. Like uh, right. DBRC had that belt. That night, like, if you if you had that belt, you were kind of a made man, uh, or, or so they say. Yeah. Um. So. Basically, Backlund stayed in St. Louis until the end of 76, um, when he left to join the WWWF. He beat uh, superstar Billy Graham, um, and we, we can't have a Billy Graham award on this uh, on this show, unfortunately, because <laughs> uh, Graham was still you know, reasonably decent at this time, um, at, at least as a talker. He was always a talker, not a worker, right, Graham? Right, right. I... I don't have any issues with his work. I thought he was just fine in the ring, but he was definitely a better talker than worker. Right. Um, so he beat uh, Graham for the title in February 78, 
and then he went 60 minutes with Harley Race in an interpromotional match not long after in April. So even at the time, it was debated. So that's a 60-minute match with Harley Race. Uh, I'm guessing that hasn't shown up on tape, otherwise you'd know about it. <laughs> from 78? Uh, uh, it from, may be out there, yeah. but I don't know. I don't think so. April 78, yeah. So even at the time, it was debated whether Backlund would be a good fit uh, for a territory used to more colorful characters and kind of ethnic babyfaces. According to Angelo Mosca, for example, Backlund was never really over, not even in 1981, and he was hard to work with. Um, So much of Matasek's entry uh, on Backlund is defending him, saying that he was a big draw and that he was, you know, it's a very kind of defensive portrait of him um, against people who criticize Backlund and don't get him. Um, But in, in the Greg Oliver book, he says, when guys like Dusty Rhodes, Ric Flair and Billy Graham were around, Backlund was considered kind of a throwback. And uh, I think that we can see that he's, and this is just my own comment, that he's more in the Dory Funk Jr. mold of champion. Like, I, he seems to be closest to, to Dory, to me. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, yeah, the, 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 one other, the one other guy I wanted to mention before we get into this uh, rather epic match, uh, <laughs> James, is Arnold uh, Scarland. <laughs> um, so... Back in uh, back in 1963, um, Toots Mond and Vince Senior broke away from the NWA, and uh, they renamed um, what was then called Capital Wrestling Corporation. They renamed it to the Worldwide Wrestling Federation, WWWF. Uh, Toots Mond had been a long time kind of promoter, and he was instrumental, I think, in setting up. Um, Capital Wrestling Corporation with Vince Sr.'s dad back in like the 50s. Um, Mond ensured that, that uh, he was still on good terms with NWA president at the time, Sam Muchnick. So even though they broke away from the NWA, Vince Sr. always kept like on good terms with uh, a lot of the other promotions. And they tended, right. to, they tended to stick up to the Northeast. They didn't go and promote in other territories. Um, however, unable to cope with the change... Uh, from arena bookings to television, Mond sold his uh, 50% of the company to uh, various other stakeholders. So he gave half of his half of the company to Vince Senior. He gave a quarter each to uh, Phil Zacco, who's a a Philadelphia promoter who looks a lot like a gangster. Uh, Mm -hmm. In fact, he looks like the penguin out of Batman uh, (laughs) in the only photo I managed to find of him. Um, and to uh, Gorilla Monsoon, who we who we know and love, and then later on, Vince Sr. Uh, gave or sold ten percent of his stake in the company to Arnold Scarland. Okay, um, and there was some weirdness with Scarland, like he kind of had a job for life in some weird way. Uh, I know that, like later on, um, when Vince Jr. buys Scarland out. He promised uh, to, like, Vince Sr. wanted to make sure that Arnie Scarland had a job till the day he dies. And I think that Vince uh, Jr. kept to that promise. <laughs> yeah, I think he did. So, yeah, and he also gave him an on screen role here as uh, Backlund's manager. So, huh. did uh, Scarland ever, like, talk or do anything? No, not a lot. Um, he, also, he 
donned the tights a few times, which you might see later in the set. Um, and that it, it didn't do a lot of talking. And, uh, you know, in MSG, at least, the managers weren't allowed at ringside. So basically his job was to walk back into the ring and then turn around and go back and <laughs> drink another six-pack. <laughs> well, as he... Yeah. I, I did notice that as he came as he came out, uh, and he, like he does look like he's drank about three bottles of whiskey. This guy. Oh, yeah, that's, <laughs> I think that's pretty safe. <laughs> he's got one of those like old men kind of like whiskey noses, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but he, he definitely looks like a throwback to a completely different time. I can only imagine some of the like the new classic New York bars he used to hang out in. <laughs> um, well, he looks like a guy. Just that face and the general mischievous facial expression he has. I, I bet he'd be a hell of a guy to have a beer with. <laughs> yeah, Arnold Scarlin. So, but as, as far as far as I can tell, he was just like a big mate of, uh, like a big friend of Vincenia, and more or less got his job, his stake in the company, and everything else through being a big friend of Vincenia. I can't really tell like any wrestling connection beyond that. Was he actually a wrestler himself? Yes. He yeah, was, he right, was. right. Okay, so maybe he wrestled for them back in like the 50s or something. Yeah, and uh, this, they pretty much maintained the same physique that you see on this set, <laughs> as far as I can tell. <laughs> yeah, in fact, I think the... Um, do you remember I was telling you about that TNT match where they showed Fred Blessy? And I'm, I'm pretty sure they show Scarland in a match uh, oh, wow. on, on, on TNT from like 54 or something. Um, yeah, this is really weird. Like, because the uh, the the tone that Vince takes during that is like he's kind of making fun of it as well. It's like let's <laughs> let's make fun of the old wrestling. Yeah, it's really weird. There's no reverence at all. So, um, <laughs> uh, right. So this is a long match, right? It's a, it's an hour. It's an hour long draw. Um, arguably one of the more more famous matches from this period. I don't know. I had never heard of it before I watched it a year ago. Uh, so I don't know. I think it has a good reputation. Uh, it's a match with some sort of reputation, which is more than we can say for, like, you know, Valiant versus Abisko. <laughs> right. uh, I noticed Howard Finkel's with the introductions here. Um, and it's pretty amazing that he was there in 1979 and he's still still there now. Yeah. Um, Vince told us that the figure four was suspended for a time. Uh, in the WWWF. Now, hmm. in my notes, I've got here that Backlund comes out looking very gimpy, almost like a kind of cheesy 50s kid that you expect to see in a comic, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so is that is that a bit unfair? Like, he's got a very kind of happy-go-lucky, kind of cheesy American look to him, to me. That's <laughs> pretty much <laughs> describes him perfectly. Um. Leah, I can't. I can't really imagine what any anybody made of him. Like, it's still a mystery. To, it's kind of a mystery to me. Like, why this guy? Like, right. it, were, were people buying him? Do you think? I think so. Uh, it certainly sounds like the crowd's digging his act. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I've got pretty long notes here. Maybe you like if I go through them, James, and you can uh, you can chime in here as we uh as we move through the match i mean okay. we're not generally going to do play by play but this is such a long match that we could kind of need to break it down a little bit um there's kind of a tentative feeling out process to start 
And uh, Vince tells us that he's the most scientific world champion ever, which is probably true. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, we get a headlock to start. Valentine fights it and struggles with it. Uh, and then some pretty sharp counter-wrestling, but Backlund manages to go back to the headlock. Um, <laughs> I've just written here, Valentine, of course, takes about 15 minutes to get going. <laughs> right. <laughs> So do, do you think, like, I was thinking, do you think this was the match that made, like, stuck in Gorilla's mind all that time? That, like, that maybe he had this in mind? That uh, Valentine, like, needs an hour to really get going? Yeah, it could have been, but uh, who knows with Gorilla. Because, <laughs> <laughs> like, he busts that line out every single time, Valentine. Can oh, yeah. Out. Yeah, he needs 20 minutes to get started, and, and he's never in a match that goes more than 13, you know? <laughs> um. One of the things I should have noted is that, uh, so reading around this match, because I, I went and had a look on the old um, uh, Kayfabe Memories board, James, where I think you and I first met. Is that right? Oh, hell, I don't remember. Do <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you remember that board, right? The, uh, the, uh, the... Yes, I I check on that sporadically, but I don't uh, yeah, very, live very, there like I do PWO. <laughs> it's a very slow board, but I did check... Uh, like what those guys made of it because you get a bit more kind of dissenting opinion on there yeah um and there's a story that this match wasn't planned to go an hour and that originally bruno versus ivan koloff was meant to be on the card mm-hmm. and uh bruno was down in pittsburgh and got stuck in a snowstorm so he couldn't make it back up for the match and obviously this being february it was obviously cold <laughs> so yeah. um they made a last minute decision for the match to go an hour so does that surprise you at all I'm I'm not sure I totally buy that. Uh, that very well could be the case, but uh, this was the first match in the series between the two. It was going to be a draw, and I noticed on uh, the history of WWE, the results, they had to uh, cancel a Valiant tag team match due to time constraints. Right. Um, and generally when WWF advertises a match, they happen. Um. I don't know where they were. It didn't seem like they were short on matches to where this really had to go an hour. I, I tend to believe it, it was the plan from the beginning, but I don't know. It, no, there is a story from a poster who was there at, at that show where he says that um, it was late on in the show and he bumped like he bumped into Bruno somehow and Bruno gave him a wink and said, I'm stuck in the snow. So... I don't know. I mean, oh wow, <laughs> it's hard. It's like it's it's a pretty interesting read, but there's a, huh. there's a, obviously a lot of apocrypha around this time, you know. Yeah. Um, so anyway, where were we? Uh, Valentine manages to get himself free from the headlock, but uh, basically, what Backler manages to get him back in the headlock, usually using a headlock takeover. Eventually, Valentine uh, socks him with a big forearm, uh, and then hits an elbow, which Vince consistently calls the brain buster. <laughs> Do you notice that? He, uh, he, calls, he calls that move the brain buster. Yeah. I know the brain buster is a different move. Right. <laughs> uh, Valentine's offense is kind of more strikes and clubbing blows and Backlund more map-based at this point in the match. But I think it's generally true to say that Valentine kind of mixes things up a bit more and Backlund is much more kind of uh, a technical map wrestler. In this right. match, at least. Would you say that's true? Yeah, I'd think so. Um, Backlund keeps on going to the uh, headlock, and I did notice the crowd was very 
quiet doing a lot of these headlock spots. Yes. Valentine drops a superb elbow drop uh, and then starts to work on Backlund's legs and back. Valentine's very methodical, I think. Um, everything he does looks like it's got a purpose and looks like it hurts. Uh, he has some knees on Valentine's uh, on Backlund's back that look very painful. Now he misses an elbow drop and Backlund immediately goes back to the headlock. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to say at this point uh, that Backlund has a paucity of imagination, James, <laughs> uh, because for for about 25 minutes in this match, his offense consists of a headlock takeover into a headlock. Right <laughs> now, is this? This is a talking point, I guess. Is this good scientific wrestling, or is it just boring? It's boring. <laughs> it's just boring. I mean, like, can we say he's telling a good story going back to the headlock again? And like, I reckon he goes back to the headlock at least eight times. In this oh, opening. at least. Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so, so for your money, that's boring. Yes. Yeah, is it because he doesn't really do anything to make the headlock interesting? Like, he doesn't, like... There's quite a lot of um, uh, Nick Bockwinkle matches where Bockwinkle kind of goes to a headlock for a long time and he wrenches on it and he makes it seem painful or the opponent will do something to make it seem more interesting. And I got the impression that when Valentine was doing his kind of mat work, he was doing things to make... Like, he was, like, putting in little knee drops or doing things to generally make it look really painful. Right. Whereas back then was literally just laying in a headlock yeah uh i did read somewhere i don't know where exactly but uh valent i think it's according to valentine he valentine said he blew up like 15 minutes into the match and uh so bob had to carry things maybe bob was giving him a 25 minute rest <laughs> it's, it's, it's possible uh yeah what, you should, so you think Backlund like figured out that Valentine was blown up, so he just thought I'm going to sit in this headlock for 25 minutes. Yeah, either that or he has no imagination. <laughs> <laughs> so Valentine goes into a full Nelson, uh, and I don't think Backlund does a tremendous job of selling it. Really, he just kind of flails around, looking a bit gimpy yeah. as Backlund tends to do. Um, he mainly tries to get his two hands to touch, and then powers out of full Nelson uh, by doing that. Valentine breaks uh, things and then Backland goes back to the full Nelson. <laughs> and what happens here is that we get a period where Backland goes to the full Nelson now four times in a row. <laughs> <laughs> I think I honestly think that he's like one of these guys who's like one track minded. Like he gets <laughs> he gets an idea into his head. <laughs> yeah. That's all he can think of. I'm gonna do a full Nelson now. <laughs> like for the next fifteen minutes. Right. Um, so, <laughs> what happens now is that Valentine uh, goes to a sh- what Vince calls a short arm scissor um, on Backland. Backland breaks it, and then he does a short arm scissor on Valentine. Is that lack of imagination again? It's like Valentine <laughs> comes up with a move, Backland does the move back on him. I mean, I can imagine there are guys who who consider that to be great storytelling, like. You know, oh, I'm sure we'll hear from him also. <laughs> like, you know, ho- hoisting Valentine by his own petard time and again, but like, right. how long is he going to do this short arm scissor now? <laughs> right. Um, I will say that of all the moves he does, he does do the short arm scissor pretty well. Like, he wrenches on it really, like, 
pretty hard wrenching back and forth. And he does about 10 of them and the crowd counts along. Yeah. Um, I don't think I've ever seen uh, a mat work spot where the crowd is counting the mat work wrenches. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty unusual. Yeah. Um, so I've just written here, this is a very technical match. Uh, he's working... Uh, the way that Backlund is working the arm is pretty brutal, I would say. And this is probably, from his point of view, the best bit of the match for me. Uh, Valentine tries to get some feeling back in the arm, so he keeps on slapping it, which is a nice little touch. Um, Valentine gains advantage and uh, goes for his own short arm scissor. And uh, he put Valentine now puts the short arm scissors on for a very long time. It feels like about 10 minutes at least. Um Backlund then picks him up while he's still in the hold, um, showing immense strength, and puts him on the turnbuckle. And then he does a big running slam. We, we should say that uh, Backlund's a, like, even though he's not a roided up guy, he's very strong. Right, yeah. He's, he's one of those guys who's like, you know, a powerhouse. Like, he genuinely is a powerhouse, a strong man. Oh, yeah. Well, you'll see him do that same move to somebody that's about twice the size of Valentine. I mean, he, he's basically deadlifting Valentine. I mean, that's pretty, yeah. it's pretty good strength. Um, yeah. They, they progress to strikes and throws. Uh, Valentine hits a back suplex, goes for the figure four. Uh, Valentine teases the figure four a few times. We get a big uh, atomic drop exchange. Uh, pretty good slugfest at this point. Uh, it really feels like these two have been through an epic struggle. Um, Backlund starts targeting the leg. He hits a butterfly, a butterfly suplex, which is, you know, pretty high spot for this time. The guys are really tired. Valentine starts pushing the ref away in frustration. Uh, Backlund hits a pretty ace gut wrench suplex towards the end. Yeah. And then uh, things are really heating up at the business end, uh, which is, and we get a real crescendo after a slow build. Pile driver, and then uh, the ref rings the bell for a draw. Um, and uh, Scarlin comes in with a belt. Uh, Valentine is pretty shattered and frustrated. So, thoughts, James, on this pretty epic match? <laughs> uh, yeah, the first time I saw this match, like a year ago, I didn't know going in that it was a one-hour draw. And I thought, the first time I watched it, I thought, this is the greatest match I've ever seen, as far as WWF goes, or at least the top five all-time. Right. Second time I watched it, when I was making the set, I thought, well, that's, that's pretty good. it's not as good as I thought. And watching it, you know, last night and today, uh, if I have to watch it one more time, I'm not watching any more wrestling. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to sit through it again. Uh, I'd give it, uh, I don't know if we're doing star ratings or not, but I give it three and a half. Three and a half. So, and you, presumably the first time you were giving it five stars. Oh, five or six or seven. <laughs> so, what, so what happened between then and now? Like, what, what, why is it aged badly for you? Uh, I don't know. I think the first time going through, I, you know, I didn't know when it was going to end. Um, I didn't realize that it was going to be a one-hour draw. I probably should have. But I thought it was a nice slow build, and there was good back-and-forth action in the, next, in the last ten minutes to where you really didn't know where it was going or when it was going to end. And it just hit me right at that time. And I thought it was great. And it just, oh, man, I'd, <laughs> I, I can't sit through that again. That's that's too much 
that's too many holds with no little intricacies that you talked about, you know, no little extra things going on. There's just two guys sitting there. (laughs) Well, I mean, the thing that really damages this match for me is the, uh, well, like I said, the, the, uh, you know, eight different headlocks in the first half hour. Now, that is like the definition of dull. Right. Um, And, uh, well, I would describe it as uh, Dory boring, James. Dory, Dory Funk Jr. style boring. Oh, uh, right. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, I, I don't know where I am on Backlund as a worker at this point. But um, if this is, like, one of his big matches to sell me on Backlund, uh-huh. I'm not sure. Like, if he worked every match, like, the last 20 minutes, he'd be somebody I'd quite enjoy. Like, he really nailed that gut wrench suplex, for example. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, the butterfly suplex was nice, and he um, the the spot where he powered Valentine up onto the turnbuckle was cool, and you know he showed decent fire during that period. But yeah. uh, like really, it felt like to me it felt like they were waiting for time to pass, which is probably right. the worst thing you can do in a hour long match. Right. Yeah. Um, this if if a person's not super familiar with Bob Backlund. This is probably not the match you want to start with. Uh, there's there's better Backlund matches out there, but in my opinion, I think he's an acquired taste. Uh, I really like the guy, uh, mm-hmm. and I don't think this is the best example of Bob's work. Uh, it'd be better to watch a dozen matches or so of his and then come back to this and watch it again. No, I have seen that there are connoisseurs out there who really consider this a classic match yeah uh is there anything that i'm missing here that i should be like as you know i'm not a big mat work guy but like the the things that i would like if i am going to sit through mat work i am looking for things to make it interesting and there are kind of very technical matches that i i enjoy like bockwinkle versus billy robinson from all japan for example right uh Bockwinkle versus Kurt Hennig has got a lot of mat work in the... There's, there's another hour-long match that builds to a, a big finish and starts slow. That's got a lot of cool stuff in it. And it's just the little things that a guy like Bockwinkle will do to keep things interesting. And I do think Valentine, in this match, was doing some of those things. But the, oh, yeah. the problem is, is that he spends most of it in a headlock. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't know that Backlund ever reached the level of uh, of Nick Bockwinkle. I think Nick Bockwinkle's clearly in a class above Backlund. But, right. Uh, I don't know. I just have to wait and see, but I, I think you'll see better better outings out of Backlund. Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, I mean, if I'm going with star ratings, I, it's hard. Um, see, another thing I think... Uh, James, on, while we're on the topic of this match, is that there is a tendency, or at least there used to be a tendency, to think, right, this match went an hour. It's got it, it's got a slow build and it builds to a massive crescendo um, to the point where you're excited at the end. So the tendency is, just as you did the first time, is to think it's one of the best things you've ever seen because you've sat through an hour of it and you're right. kind of popping at the end. Um, I wonder if that kind of that kind of colors people's memories of it you know 
where when you feel like you've been through some sort of epic and therefore that adds like a star or two to the rating. Right. Yeah, I told I think I'm more or less with you on this, about three and a half. Yeah. Um I can see some people saying it's uh higher than that. Um but uh not not for me. I'm I'm not sophisticated enough to enjoy this. <laughs> I think yeah. Well, I, I wouldn't argue too hard with somebody that would have it rated as an all-time classic. Um, it just comes down to taste, I guess. It was a little too dull for too long for me, and I've seen much better one-hour draws. Uh, right. Quite a, a lot of them, actually. So the madness, so y'all out of work like Tony Atlas. They know, they know, and I know, I know, she know, she know, we know, know, that I'm an old temp like Bruno Sammartino, or Ivan Busby, or the brother Tony Atlas. Fuck disco, count on Monte Crisco. Fuck disco and Jack and Jerry Briscoe. Next thing you've got on the, the set after this is the Valiants versus Gurria and Zabisco, but it's just the uh, just the pinfall for the title switch. Right. This is Gentleman Jerry and uh, and, and Johnny. Um, was that match unavailable, or did you just want to put the switch on there? Uh, it. I don't know if it's out there or not. It's just what I had at the time, and it's off of a uh, of the tag team champions uh, Coliseum video release. Right. And uh, I was not going to go out of my way to get more Valiant footage. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought this. You know, it's thirty seconds or sixty seconds. You see the title switch, and if you want to see the full match, go find it yourself. <laughs> well, so you're not going to be putting together a gentleman Jerry Valiant comp? Um, no, I don't think so. I, that's I, that hasn't made it onto my list yet. <laughs> what do you think the market demand for Jerry Valiant? Uh, <laughs> I know uh, one guy that would love to see it uh, on a different board. <laughs> well, uh, he's a he's a Jerry Valiant mark, is he? Yeah, uh, Valiants in general. Valiants yeah, in general, yeah. right. I bet he would. Maybe there's a market for it out there. I'm not aware of. <laughs> um, so th- there is one guy who uh, officially is making his uh, his debut on our on our show. That's uh, Tony Gurria. He's already had quite a few mentions. Um, so I don't have a huge amount of notes for him, but essentially from 1973 till 1981, Gurria was pretty much the staple of the WWF tag division for the babyface side. Um, oh, yeah. Originally, he's from Auckland in New Zealand, and he made his uh, debut as a pro in the 1960s, wrestling for Jim Barnett in Australia. Um, he was brought into WWF in 1973, and he made uh, almost an instant impact, winning the tag titles twice, once with Haystack's Calhoun. That was a pretty work-rate heavy team. Oh. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, does, uh, does Haystack's uh, crop up? I, 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 uh, I haven't l- looked at the... Uh, was he done uh, by this point? Haystack's coming. Yeah, I don't believe he's. At 78 was the last time I think he appears. Right. Uh, yeah, I don't think he's on this set. Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that must have been like a colossal connection type of deal where, you know, Gurria's doing most of the work and Calhoun comes in for a hot tag, I guess. Right. If if he even tags <laughs> it at all. Right. I mean, you know, you can make a successful career that way. Of course, uh, Big Daddy from uh, from these shores uh, spent most of his career doing that. He was essentially the hot tag. Oh yeah, uh, I've got a couple of uh, coworkers right now from the UK, and that's uh, that's always the first guy they mention. <laughs> right. 
Um, and then once uh, he he also wins the tag titles with uh, with Dean Ho. Familiar with him? Uh, vaguely, I've run across a couple matches of his recently, but I've I've got nothing to add. <laughs> he um he was also named uh, Gorilla. This is he was named PWI's Rookie of the uh, Year for 1973. Oh. Uh, after holding the tag titles for nearly six months with Ho, <laughs> they lost them to the Valiants, uh, and then Gurria's next partner was none other than Larry Zabisco. So that's uh, that pretty much gets us up to the present day. Yeah. Um, yeah, and not a lot here. Uh, I guess there's uh, plenty more Gurria to come. Oh, yeah. Yeah, lots. Uh, and uh, Gurria's pretty awesome, I think. Um, yeah, well, I look forward to seeing him tag legend uh, as he is and then the final uh match that we're gonna look at this evening is uh greg valentine versus bob backland mark ii mm-hmm. uh which is announced as a one fall to a positive finish <laughs> um so this one started out at a faster pace uh any thoughts on this one james um I like it a lot better than the hour draw. Um, That's interesting. And it's, it's, you know, it was 30, 35 minute match. And that just flew by (laughs) watching these back to back. Uh, I I thought they went, there's a little too much mat work. And I thought they went a little too early to the mat for an extended period of time. But I guess that actually probably makes sense that they would do that early. But yeah, it bogged down and got too slow, too fast. I thought. What the hour-long draw or this one? This one. This yeah. this this one got too slow, too fast. I thought so. Yeah, I mean, but uh, what did I think? I mean, Backlund did have some pretty massive slams during this match. Yeah. <laughs> there there was a moment during the match. I don't know if you caught this, where some guy in the crowd shouted, "Somebody do something." Oh, no. <laughs> I didn't catch that. That made me laugh uh, a little bit. It made me uh, kind of look up. How um, far into the match was that? I, I think that was in that kind of portion of the of the mat work that that, ah. that you were talking about there. Okay. Um, and Valentine hits a great elbow drop as Backlund is getting up at one point. Like he's kind of getting up on all fours, and uh, Valentine hits the elbow across the back of his head. I thought right. that was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, the crowd went pretty apeshit when uh, Backlund got the figure four on Valentine. Um, yeah. and this then was a much hotter crowd than February. I mean, they yeah. were they were into this shit big time. Yeah, I think they were pretty in. Like they were they were you know this is a pretty loud uh, crowd here. Was this MSG this this, yes. uh, this match? Yeah, yeah, and it looked like a pretty full house to me as well. I mean, yeah. Um, we get some big exchanges towards the end. Uh, I think um, the, uh, Valentine had uh, dropped some pretty neat um forearms like he's pretty great with a forearm smash yeah um and uh, we get the uh patented valentine face flop i guess uh, i've right. never i've never seen any flair and valentine tagging together but i'm guessing they were flopping all over the place those two <laughs> yeah i'd love to see that um we get now this is a talking point here because we get a pretty ridiculous spot at the end of this match where Valentine thinks he's uh, gets a two count and then he thinks he's won and Backlund pins him. Uh, I think this is a pretty awful, awful finish. Oh yeah. And uh, I, I did go back to see like if anybody's ever talked about this. And our uh, 
our friend, one of the uh, elder statesmen, I guess, of the uh, hardcore wrestling community, John D. Williams, or should I say, uh, one of the dark lords of that community. Um, <laughs> he thought he thinks this is one of the best finishes ever. Uh, I don't really understand that at all. I thought it was just the, the, the worst. Like, why? Why does Valent? Why does Valentine think he's won? Yeah, I don't know. Um, uh, it, yeah, it, it's he's he's well, it's kind of incredible to think Valentine was a ten-year veteran at this point, or maybe more, and he's, as far as I know, to this day, still accepting independent bookings. <laughs> right. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, that's a rookie mistake, and uh, WWF pulls out this finish too often. I think where you get the rep or. Backlund slap and Valentine on the back, you know, after a two counter during the count, and he thinks the ref is is telling him that it's over or something. I mean, like, yeah, you know, he's had a thousand matches at this point. Uh, I mean, come on. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, it, I mean, it, it, as you as you may know from uh, listening to to the other show I do, uh, that's a finish I hate. Like, it, it mm-hmm. never ma- it always makes the guy look stupid. It never makes a lot of sense. Like, right. it, it was clearly a two count. Like no part of it makes sense to me. Um, so I, what I can't understand is why JDW thinks it's particularly novel or clever. Like, does he? Well, uh, let's have him on. And, uh, <laughs> no, well, I, his brain. I know. I know he never does podcast, James. So uh, he, oh, he, has, he has a standing no podcast rule. But like, uh, yeah. I mean, let me just very quickly go and uh, go and have a look what his account of that finishes because I don't. Um, I really thought it left a sour taste in my mouth for what was a pretty decent match before it. Um, He says, uh, Greg covers Bob for a pin. Bob taps Greg's back. Greg thinks it's the ref and breaks the cover. Greg celebrates. Bob gets up and atomic uh, knee drops. So he's saying that this isn't Valentine making a mistake. It's him thinking that he's won because the ref taps him on the back. Right. Does that happen when uh, somebody wins a match? Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> I, I, I don't understand. Like, I, I think that he's reading something into the finish that isn't there. There, It's just right. it's just your bog-standard guy who thinks he's one of the two two-count and gets pinned. And why would Bob tap Greg on the shoulder a few times? Why wouldn't Bob just lift his shoulder before the three-count? I mean, just yeah. lift your shoulder. I mean, what... I, it does doesn't make any sense, right? And also, why is why is uh, Valentine going down to an atomic drop? That's a pretty weak spot to get beaten by. Oh, that was Backlund's finisher. Oh, that's Backlund's finisher, is it? Yes, the atomic drop. Oh God! Now so, he switches to the uh, the chicken wing submission in uh, oh eighty two, maybe even eighty three. So I can't. Um, I'm having problems buying the atomic drop as a finisher. This is going to be a this is going to be a big problem for me because we got a pile driver in the last match. Yeah. And he's got like we know he's got like better moves in his arsenal. Uh, it's yeah. going to be really difficult for me because I mean to my uh, philistine mid to late 80s WWF mind, the atomic drop is like the most bog standard babyface kind of standard offense move. Right. Do you think that was by? Design to make Bob look worse, you know, because <laughs> you know, everybody in their everybody had the atomic drop in their arsenal to break out as a transition move or <laughs> a nothing move just to make Bob look like shit. 
Oh, I may have been. I could have been particularly sinister, but uh, I don't like. It's really hard for me to. That's going to take some uh, pretty a lot of um, rethinking on my part to try to understand uh, what the atomic drop is doing there. As a, as oh, a yeah, you're going to see a lot of them too. Um, okay, so it's, it's big enough to beat uh, Valentine. All right. Um, so uh, we've pretty much reached the end, James. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, are you looking forward to getting on to the rest of 1979? What, what have we got coming up? What kind of? Sure. Uh, uh, we've got on the next disc. Uh, naturally, I don't have it in front of me. That'd be too easy. Uh, <laughs> I've got. Uh, it's Bruno San Martino versus Ivan Koloff from this same show. Oh, that uh, should be March fun. MSG card. And be interesting to uh, compare the crowd heat with this match. I thought they were pretty hot Yeah. versus what we see with uh, Bruno versus Ivan Koloff. So so did this match go on last? Or... No. No, this would have been... Uh, they generally put the title matches in the middle of the card. Right. Uh, and then they would end up they would typically end the show with, uh, like, if Andre was in town, it was like a six-man with Andre the Giant. Or a match with some sort of interest usually went on last, and they you'll see a lot of curfew draws. But, but, the, uh, but the title match was still the main event, right? Uh, as far as I know, the, the title match was advertised as the main event. And the main event, okay. They would put that in the middle of the card, and then... Uh, people would see the finish and then they would announce the card for the next month. So everybody could go buy tickets to see Cause this is, you know, the rematch. This is one of the things that really gets uh, uh, Larry Matisic hot under the collar in his uh, Bob Backlund entry. It's when people say that Backlund wasn't really drawing all these hot MSG crowds. It was the very hot, uh, the, the kind of stacked undercard that he had. And uh, Matisic's point is that when you're running MSG or or any major arena at this time, you stack the card. You you just put your strongest possible card on, um, and uh, every other top drawing person at this time would have had strong support. So you can't hold that against Backlund. That's his point. So uh, <laughs> I don't really think they were putting on the strongest cards they possibly could have. Um, so it's, WWF, they were very measured. And what there's a great quote in Bill Watts's book about this. I'll dig it up for next time. But they held back on a lot of stuff and just put out just a little bit of good stuff at a time. So they'd right. always have something to fall back on. They didn't shoot their wad all in one show ever. Right. Uh, okay. They doled out the good stuff little by little. I don't think they, my opinion, I don't think they loaded up a lot of cards. Right, so so you could like even somebody who wanted to make the argument that's not really true. Like Backlund wasn't getting huge. You, you can basically, basically the talking point is: can you attribute a lot of the houses to him as a top drawing champ at this time? Because he was said like these were, as far as we know, um, either sellouts or really like you know crowds bigger than twenty thousand, which is right. I think you, Bob should get a lot of credit for that. Um, I mean, you can go back and look. I mean, Bruno's getting credit for all of his sellouts, and he's dealing with the same type of undercard. Um, I Bob should get the same credit for, you know, his sellouts and hot crowds and 
bad. I think he did pretty well. Right. So 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 with this particular like for this twenty sixth of March uh, show, we can't credit the gate to Bruno versus Ivan. We ha- we we have to say it's Backlund versus Valentine, right? I mean. Yeah, I would guess. I mean, you know, Bruno versus Ivan probably brought people there as well. But I think the the main selling point would have been, you know, Backlund versus Valentine. Right. Okay. Well, Although uh, there might have been a little more interest because you know the the Bruno versus Ivan Koloff match got canceled in February, yeah, so it, in March people might have been real hot to see that match. I don't right. know. No, it's it's possible. Um, okay, well that's interesting. I, I can see some other uh, the SG the SD Jones bio is going to be pretty difficult. To, <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to put that because he doesn't make it into any of the books that I've got. <laughs> oh, that's a shocker! Like he's—I—I uh, I don't know. He may be in the—I uh, doubt it, but he may be in the uh, heroes and icons book. <laughs> <Huh>. <laughs> don't bet on it. So uh, I may have to turn to like—I uh, do have like a few like wrestling encyclopedias and things, but they're very shallow. Like it, yeah. it'll say, you know, S.D. Jones was a prelim guy for a lot of the eighties. Right. Uh, you know, I could tell you that now. So <laughs> um, I don't know a lot about S.D. Jones. Like, um, that'll, that'll be interesting to look into. Uh, Fred Curry, Jose Estrada, so great Hussein Arab. There's, right. There's quite a lot of interesting stuff uh, to come on the next edition of the Titans of Wrestling. Do you want to do some uh, kind of end of uh, end of show style awards? We'll, we'll just pick like a, an MVP and a, and a, and a worst worker. Sure. And a uh, and a match of the night, just like just like we do on uh, where the big boys play. I'm gonna go with the second Backlund versus Valentine match from March MSG. I have that rated three and five eighth stars, <laughs> which is higher than the three and a half I gave to the February match. <laughs> uh, so, in fact, it should be a match of the disc, I guess. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I'm gonna say. Uh, do you, do, you, do you know what? I, I actually think that the finish hurts that March match quite a lot. And I'm going to give it to the, uh, to the hour long, um, as a, as a three and a half. And I, I'll give the, the March match, uh, three stars only. Mm-hmm. Um, just because, uh, like I felt there were parts of that, which were quite flat as well, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. So who is your who is your MVP? I mean, presumably it's uh, either Backlund or Valentine, right? Yeah, I'm gonna go with Valentine. Uh, he's awesome, and uh, his rest holds were more interesting than Backlund's rest holds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, were they like we could argue that they were submission holds in the truest sense rather than rest holds? Oh, no, sure, yeah, yeah, whatever you want to call them. <laughs> um, okay, yeah, I'll go. I'm tempted to give it to ivan but that would that seems a bit harsh given that we saw like two hours of valentine almost so um i'll give it to valentine as well um and then a worst (laughs) worker uh well i'm tempted to call this the johnny valiant award but (laughs) i think it's this particular disc it's got to go to lou albano for those kicks yes it's it's difficult (laughs) It's difficult to look beyond uh, Albano, really. Right. Although I will say, Grand Wizard, uh, a manager who stood at the back and didn't say anything. 
Yeah, he nodded three times. That's that's an easy paycheck for him, and uh, and an easy paycheck for Alan Scarland, who 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 literally, uh, I think he handed Backlund his belt back after the March match. That's as much. Well, he he did get the crack Valentine over the head with it in February. So at the end of the match. Oh, did he do that? I, I, yeah, uh, he I came in and that's how he broke up the figure four. After oh the right, match was okay. Over. Well, at least he, you know, that's so, uh, that's pretty good. He, he earned his uh, five grand or whatever he got for that appearance. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, how do you feel? First, first, uh, first show. We look forward to many more to come. Yeah, hope so. On the Hudson River line I'm in a New York state of mind I've seen all the movie stars In their fancy cars and their limousines Been high in the Rockies Under the Evergreen I know what I'm needing And I don't want to waste more time I'm in a New York state of mind 